From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we talk with Shruti Dupati and Jeff Frisbee of Addison Farms Vineyard in Leicester, North Carolina. Jeff was looking for ways to preserve the family farm after years of raising cattle and tobacco, so he decided to plant grapes and make wine. Shruti joined Addison Farms a few years ago as vineyard manager and winemaker. She's been helping Jeff to implement new vineyard techniques to improve quality and produce the best possible fruit they can. The wine mouths are also back in this episode. This time, they tell us about wine faults and how you can identify them. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, we're here today with Shruti Dupati and Jeff Frisbee of Addison Farms Vineyard. Shruti and Jeff... Welcome to Cork Talk. Hi, thanks for having us. Guys, we appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And Shruti, this is actually your second time on Cork Talk. So you and Michael Helton are the only two that have been on twice, thanks to the Blogger Summit back in 2019 with the panel we did. So uh, thanks for joining us again. So let's start off with uh, having both of you tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, Shruti, uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do at Addison Farms. I'm... Shruti and I love wine and uh, I am currently the vineyard manager and winemaker at Addison Farms for the past couple years and um, I have been studying wine and working in the wine industry for a while. I started off in the restaurant industry um, and I've been working in restaurants since I was 17 and started working for a couple, Chip and Tina, who um, Chip had worked with a lot of amazing chefs, Jean-Louis Paladin and Larry Forgione, and um, Tina was uh, the wine person, and she has, was a person to teach me, train my palate, and make me fall in love with wine. Um, and then I went to school abroad at uh, Montpellier Supagro, uh, to do a master's program in winemaking and viticulture. Um, and that was a two-year program, and I had done several internships before and also during that program. But then after I graduated, I found Jeff, and uh, he was hiring right after I graduated. So it was a, it was a lucky, serendipitous um, meeting together. That's awesome. Timing is always one of the most important things, especially like when you're coming right out of school. It's like, okay, what can I get? Where do I want to go? So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So what time frame are we talking about here? Um, I was, I guess I started interning at wineries in 2011. I was in Washington State for a year. Um, I was in Italy, uh, in Tuscany for a harvest and then I was in Germany in the Mosul Valley for a harvest. And then I started my education in 2014. Um, 
And so that was about a year and a half. And then I did another internship in Sauternes, south of Bordeaux. Um, that was about like almost a little over six months. And then I graduated in 2017. So it was kind of um, it, the this, the in class was in France and Italy, and then I came to the United, came back home to North Carolina to do my actual thesis work, and then went back a little back and forth. So got to travel a lot, which was really great. But then started with Jeff in 2017. Awesome, that's exciting. I gotta say, the world travel definitely sounds very appealing, especially going to different winery areas, wine regions, uh, working in different countries and, and just seeing how they do stuff. So that's that's really a great experience to have. Yes, it was awesome to see how um, different different countries do thing, do the same thing in like totally different ways. And, and there were all always different grape varieties too. So that was neat. Very cool. Jeff, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about you and give us your, your intro. Well, I'm not nearly as interesting as Shreve, but uh, I have spent most of my career in technical sales. Um, and in 2008, I found myself uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grow, grew up. And so uh, Diane and I, my wife and I were living in Atlanta at the time, and we both wanted to be back here. Uh, this farm is important to us. It's uh, my family home, my my granddad and his folks bought this farm uh, in the 30s and then he and my grandmother were married in the early 40s and uh, my mom has lived on this piece of property her whole life and and the the trigger for me was farmland preservation trying to do something to preserve the family farm for the next generation and um, I really believe that we are in a world-class wine growing region we just lack the history and the the experience to demonstrate that yet. Um, I think there's some really fantastic juice coming out of this state um, and over time we'll prove that theory. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're not the first, we're not the, uh, the first ones to do this, but we're also, you know, still in, in our infancy as far as an industry is concerned. And so uh, we're learning as we go. And, the trigger here for me, like I said, was uh, Diane and I wanted to be back home uh, and we wanted to do something to preserve the family farm. So uh, growing grapes and making wine seemed like um, a product that we could do where we weren't just an agricultural business, but we were also the manufacturer of doing that value added process uh, because farming is an intensely labor intensive business. It's capital intensive and the margins are awful. Uh, most family farms, I'll go off on a tangent here for just a second, but uh, in 2017, the USDA ERS shows that the median farm income in the U.S. was negative $1,386, oh, meaning wow. half of the farms in the U.S. lost more money than that. Some percentage lost less, but still lost money, and some very small percentage actually makes money. It takes off-farm income for farming to happen in the U.S., and that's that's insane. Um, it means that the farmer growing your food is subsidizing your grocery bill. Um, I think it may have been Paul Harvey. It's been a long time since I heard this phrase, but uh, he said the farmer is the only man in the world that buys everything at retail and sells everything at wholesale. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so finding a way to both preserve the farm and at least potentially have a product that didn't always lose money um, was the goal here. I haven't proven that theory. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes a little bit longer. So what was the farm, Jeff? What, what were the crops or the animals that were on the farm before you planted the vineyard? So my grandparents um, were typical North Carolina farmers. They had um, tobacco and uh, cattle. Um, they even had a couple of dairy cows, uh, though that wasn't the, the focus of this particular farm. Um, always had a family uh, garden, but again, that wasn't a commercial product. It was just uh, keeping themselves fed through the winter. Um, but tobacco and, and cattle would have been the predominant products here on the farm. And my mom and dad, sorry, I, I realize I've left out a pretty big gap there. My mom and dad continued to raise cattle, but the tobacco has been gone since the early 80s. The cows were here. Um, my mom and dad will tell you that it was mainly to keep uh, the two boys engaged so they didn't get in trouble. If they had chores to do, they couldn't be uh, getting into trouble. Exactly. I mean, that's no better way to keep them out of trouble by keeping them busy, for sure. So, so Jeff, I guess let's back up a moment. Can you tell folks exactly where you are? Where is Addison Farms? In, in yeah, the that's, a, that's actually a great <laughs> question, Joe. Um, we're in Leicester, North Carolina, which is north-northwest of Asheville. Uh, we're on the very outer edge of Buncombe County. So we're still in Buncombe County, but uh, we're a stone's throw away from Madison. Very cool. And what's the elevation in Leicester? Uh, our elevation is actually not all that high. We're only about 100 feet higher than the uh, Asheville airport. Um, I like it. Uh, depends on which device I'm using as to what it tells me the elevation here is. But the one I like the best is 2,282 feet. Uh, I think that will eventually make a great t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly a name, good name for a wine. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, definitely. Yeah. So speaking of names, actually, so Jeff, how did the name Addison Farms uh, come to be? Um, Addison was my maternal granddad's given name. And this he was the one that, that bought this piece of property and it seemed appropriate to honor him, his memory with, uh, with the name. Very cool. Definitely a good way to keep the, keep the tradition going. And like you said, preserve the farmland, preserve it for future generations. So, yeah, that, that's an important something to us. Um, we're, I spent the early part of my career in North Metro Atlanta. Um, and I watched a community go from, farming community, bedroom community in five years. I mean, it was, it was already, that process was already going on, but the only thing, the only crop, uh, we made the joke that the only crop growing, uh, in Forsyth County were the little yellow zoning daisies that (laughs) yet another farm was becoming a subdivision. And so what I, what I didn't want to see here, I don't, I don't want to look out my back window and see a subdivision. I'm, I, the farm, farmland, is precious. And when it's gone, it's gone. It's not coming back. And so doing something, doing my part to try to keep a little piece of it anyway, uh, in farming is, uh, is the goal here. Exactly. And you know, those are very important skills to know, to learn, to kind of pass on because all too often we take for granted that, Hey, we don't know where our food comes from, where our wine comes from. And I think being able to do all of that, as you had mentioned, Jeff, you're, you're kind of providing that full service. You, you know exactly where the product that you're consuming is coming from. So that's awesome. So, Jeff, you started kind of putting things together in 2008. Was that when the vineyard was first planted? 
Uh, we actually planted uh, in the spring of 2009. We planted the first acre that year. Uh, we added another acre and a half in, in 2010. And then from 2011 to 2015, we added between a half and three quarters of an acre each year. Um, so today we're, I, I like to say we're pretty close to six acres, but the reality is we're pretty close to five and a half uh, under vine. That's still pretty sizable though. Uh, it's, um, you know, our California neighbors would call it a vanity. Uh, <laughs> Shruti will tell you that we've got plenty of work to do with, uh, with that little bit of uh, vineyard area. I can imagine. So, so now that you brought up the, the vineyard, so let's go ahead and talk about what is it that you actually grow? We've got five different varieties under vine today. Uh, we have Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and Petit Mansang. Those four are historically grown by our neighbors in France. Um, and then we're growing Sangiovese as well, which is a historically Italian variety. Um, the varieties that we chose, we chose them um, because they tend to have relatively loose clusters and relatively thick skins. They, we wanted to give them the best opportunity to avoid disease and, and rot that we could give them in our temperate rainforest. So, Shruti, tell us a little bit about working with the um, working with the grapes and the vines in the vineyard itself. Yeah, they're they're like uh, very needy children. <laughs> um, so, it's really, <laughs> it's very beautiful. Um, and to be honest, as opposed to see, to seeing um, strawberry farmers or something like that, that is really backbreaking work. Everything that we're doing with at least with our trellis system, it's very upright. So you get to be standing and um, you, you, um, it's, it's nice work. I'll, I'll say that. I like, I enjoy the vineyard work. Um, this year has been a bit tough with, uh, we had a pretty bad season for frost. A um, couple full moons just right in that ripening, in that when the first green shoots are coming out. So we just had a, about three pretty hard cold snaps. And so um, we lost uh, all the green tissue about three times. Mm. And so it's interesting to see with, with having those different varieties, which ones came back, which ones are still fruitful, which ones are not. Um, and then I guess the future will show uh, which varieties are harder, hardier and not. Um, but there have been frosts in the, in the past, which Jeff can tell you about, that um, have really hurt some of the other varieties that have been growing. Um, but it's been interesting because all of these different grape varieties ripen and um, grow at, at different times. So usually the Petit Mansang will come out first, but it's the last to ripen. Um, and then the Sangiovese will come out, but it's the first to ripen. And then the Cabernet Sauvignon is the last to come out, but then it's the second to last to ripen. So usually that gives us a nice workflow as far as we do this task in this section, and then we can move on to this task in this section, and, um, and so on and so forth. But then this year, everything died at the same time, <laughs> and so everything came back at the same time. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so that turned into, like, a mad dash of, of everybody needs to be shoot thinned at the same time. And it was like, you know, school's letting out, and all the buses are going, and, <laughs> and everybody is <laughs> ready to eat at, at the same time. 
so it has been um, a bit challenging, um, but also good. We've, despite the frost, the petite man saying has shown some resilience as far as um, having still having a lot of fruit um, versus something like the Cabernet Franc, which there's barely anything. Mm. Um, so uh, it's it's interesting to see the varieties that generally do well are the Petit saying the Petit Verdot and the Cap Franc as, as far as what we have, but the Petit Verdot and the Petit saying still have um, a lot more fruit than we thought we were going to have versus the other varieties. So so our Petit saying Petit Verdot, they are consistently the, the best in the vineyard or the easiest, or the easiest to work with? I think definitely for fruit quality, um, those seem to make the, the best wines as far as um, making a wine that's more varietally um, accurate. And Petit Man saying is it's just generally hardier. Um, I don't see as much fruit rot as um, maybe the Sangiovese or the Montepulciano, which, which we have had in the past. Um, and then the Petit Verdot is probably the most balanced. Um, that can be something that's hard to get here with having so much rain and having so much fertility in the soil, um, you're kind of fighting this battle with the vines to, to keep them hedged back, to keep them from being overgrown. But the Petit Verdot tends to be a little more balanced. So from your experiences working in different parts of the world, how is it uh, different or similar in you know Western North Carolina growing the grapes or, or tending to the grapes? One, one place that was quite similar in in Germany. Um, I was in the Mosel Valley at uh, Max Ferdinand Richter estate, and they had a lot of Riesling. And there's, that was, I was there for, for a summer, so I got to do the more of the growing in the vineyard part, um, actually see that, part, that side instead of just doing a harvest. Um, and they have a lot of rain during this. There were most, there's so many days where it was drizzling and rainy more than there were sunny days. So we kind of have a similar thing where it may not, it, it kind of, we get hard rains and they're, it's more drizzly, but there were a lot of overcast days. So when you think about wine regions being this like sunny California thing, it's not so. Um, and they made, they were making world-class Riesling. So um, that was interesting. And then also their vines were crazy. They were, they were huge and really thick and, and just growing like 12 feet tall. And so it was, it was kind of to, to having seen that and then having seen what we have, it's like this happens in other places too that make world-class wine. So that was sort of interesting. And then it was kind of the opposite in France, where the vine itself was a lot smaller um, and a lot more contained, I guess. Um, the uh, And everything was planted so much closer. So in Bordeaux, they'll do like a meter by meter spacing. Oh, wow. And that's because the soil is poor. And so the vines don't get very big, so you plant them closer together. Hmm. So, and then that, and here, here everything's further apart because you need that space because it's going to go crazy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. And plus it helps get, you know, like, you know, bigger tractors and things like that through there. So, or bigger equipment through. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I do see some crazy fancy equipment. Um, the at Dwazi Diane, the place I was in um, Sauternes, they had this over the road tractor. So the wheels are actually um, it, it goes in between two rows and um, it can whatever it's doing, it can do to four rows instead of two. Wow. That's efficient. But they're working with like hundreds and hundreds of acres. So there's a lot more work. <laughs> so, so Jeff, you've been growing grapes here in, in Western North Carolina for a while now too. So what are some of the advantages or benefits that you see of growing grapes in Western NC? So I, I think our biggest advantage is also our disadvantage is that we're delayed a couple of weeks Historically, we are delayed a couple of weeks from our neighbors in Yadkinville. Um, the we will be maybe two weeks behind on on bud break. That that's where the real big difference comes in. Um, which for us, we're typically going to see a little bit later frost threat than uh, they do. This year was, as our friend John Wright said, it's been a hashtag viticultural dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> But um, in a in a normal year, whatever that means, um, that delayed bud break tends to help us miss that frost damage. Um, that's not always the case. Uh, we we get a little bit of damage almost every year, particularly in the San Giovese, because just like Shruti said, it comes out first. Uh, and so our our hope is that. Um, we're seeing minimal damage from that. Um, so that the answer to the question is, I'm not sure, Matt. I, I don't know if there's an advantage to being here versus uh, at a thousand feet. Give me another hundred years and we can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the reality is I think that we each region, the Piedmont and the mountains have uh, certain things that are advantageous and disadvantageous um, both. And, there's going to be a trade-off. We tend to have very similar growing seasons, right? I mean, the the heat accumulation here and the heat accumulation in the Yadkin Valley is going to be very, very similar. Um, we may be sh a couple of weeks shorter on grow time, though, and that is going to make it a little more challenging for us to get fruit ripe compared to uh, the same place, um, you know, um, you, we mentioned Jay earlier. Jay's fruit may be coming in a little earlier than ours is because they're starting a little earlier than we are. Uh, I don't know if that answered the question or not because I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if there's an advantage or disadvantage to being where we are. No, I think it definitely did. It's it's all very much exper uh, experiential, um, and and I think you know our last conversation that we had with with Mark and Sarah of NC State, they were talking about you know how research uh, we do a lot of research on grapes but we need to do more research on grapes so i think that's also one of those things like we won't really know until we do a lot more research so and you know like i said we're we're not the the bleeding edge of of north carolina viticulture there are plenty of others that have gone before us but we're still we're still out here on the on the forefront uh we're we don't have enough history to be able to to know what grapes are going to do well like truthy said the Petit Mansang and the Petit Verdot, and, and uh, except for this year, the Cabernet Franc, um, have been just a little bit more disease resistant, a little more hardy, a little more consistent in production. We can 
kind of tell what we're going to, we know what we're going to get before we break bud. Um, but <laughs> this year kind of threw all that out. So um, who knows? And, you know, are we going to have a harvest this year? We're treating it like we are, um, but we're five weeks behind. We, we have yet, this week is the first week that we've seen color in the vine. So we're just now seeing Verasian wow. start. And I'm not quite willing to say it's even started. I think we're seeing sporadic color at this point. Verasian hasn't really set in yet. Hmm. Uh, yeah, hmm. thanks, Shruti. She agrees with me, which is really <laughs> rare. <laughs> so, Jeff, I know you keep meticulous records on, on the weather and, and that sort of thing. So what kind of trends are you seeing uh, kind of year to year uh, with the weather uh, as far as, you know, growing degree days and, and heat and that sort of thing and rain, uh, things that impact uh, the fruit that you get? So I, I'm not sure I can give you a pattern on rain right now. It's, it's sporadic. Um, 2018 was the wettest year on record last year. Um, we were, we had an ever so slight deficit in rainfall year over, for the year for what is average. Um, this year we're, we're wet. It's, it's, you know, it's just been rainy all year long. So, uh, Shruti and I've had this conversation of, of probably a thousand times. Uh, 2018 was her first full year here. And I told her if that didn't make her want to go back to medical school, <laughs> nothing. Would. And then last year I told her, you know, don't get used to this because this is a once in a lifetime one, you know, twice every lifetime kind of growing season for the East coast because it was hot and dry all through from July 1st till the end of harvest. Um, this year has been a little more typical. So I, the heat accumulation, um, 2018 was our wettest year, but it was also the hottest year, uh, uh, in that period, April 1st to October 31st, uh, until last year. And last year was the hottest year. So, um, this year is actually on the cooler side, uh, even though it doesn't feel like it when you're out there working. Um, we're, uh, this is our 12th growing season and this is year number nine to this point in the year. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the bottom quartile of, of heat accumulation, uh, for 2020, uh, which also means that ripening is going to be pushed out even further uh, just because uh, we basically started over on May 10th. Do we have enough time to get fruit ripe? What's hurricane season going to do? These guys are going to be at their most tender this year just as the, all of that really active hurricane season starts. So um, it's entirely possible that we do all this work and the fruit rots before it ever gets to ripen. Yeah, it's going to be a struggle for sure. Um, cultural dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much 2020 uh, as a whole, though. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> actually, yeah. So, actually, I think, you know, right now we're actually at a, a really good time to take a quick little break for our education segment. But then when we come back, let's actually pick up with the wines that you produce and we'll go through the offerings that you have there. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mounts. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks, thanks for having us. So what topic are we discussing today? Today we're gonna to be diving into wine faults and how to spot them. Interesting, okay, tell us more. Well, hopefully you don't have wine faults <laughs> when you're drinking wine, but if you ever open a bottle and it's a little funky, it might be helpful to know why and what's going on in there. Yeah. So we thought we'd just cover some of the big ones, either because they're fun or because you may experience them. So 
dive right in. Um, first is we're going to talk about pork tank, which everybody's probably heard um, of a wine being pork, which in reality nowadays, it's not very common. So you're probably never going to experience this, but it was a big problem a while back. And so it's on everybody's mind. Kind of one of those things that stuck around and, and everyone really thinks like, oh my gosh, it's corked. Right. Right. Mm. Must be corked. That must be a thing that's happening. <laughs> so corked, you know, because the smell is like wet newspaper or wet cardboard, musty. And if you really want to impress your friends, cork taint is actually PCA, which stands for 246 trichloroanisol. Well, that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Again, for those in the back, 246 trichloroanisol. Yeah, it's the chemical compound responsible. There's a reason the speech pathologist says that word. So what causes cork taint? So cork taint comes through wood. So that chemical can happen if there's wood around and if it interacts with chlorine. Before we knew about this, everybody cleaned with Clorox and all these cleaners that had these chemicals in it. And then when it reacted, it could cause cork taint. Mm. So that is why you never clean a winery with Clorox. And a lot of, because it's called cork, you know, it can live in the cork. So with this, there was a backlash against using real cork. You wouldn't have it if you had a synthetic cork or whatnot. But like I said, they fixed this issue a lot. So it's not something you need to like scrounge around and look for in every bottle. Okay. So nothing too major then. Right. And if you happen to miss it and drink the whole bottle anyways, it's not going to harm you. If your wine did have cork paint. There's no health concerns. Maybe you need to work on your smell, but other than that. (laughs) (laughs) Might have a bit of a cold. (laughs) So what other faults are out there? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So the next one with a big long name that I'll abbreviate since I'm not good at pronunciation would be Brett. (laughs) Very good. And would make a good baby name. (laughs) (laughs) Would that be a a whole first name or a, a first and middle? I think it would have to go with the abbreviation. Okay. So tell us more about Brett. So this one is interesting because it is a yeast, um, but it's like a, it's a spoilage yeast. So it's not a desirable quality in wine, though in very, very small quantities, it can actually add complexity to your wine. And so there is a big debate's not the right word, but there are people that think a little bit of Brett is okay, especially old world. It's one of those things that kind of when you get it in your winery, it's near impossible to get rid of. So, you know, once you get it, your wines may always have a little bit of it. And that might be okay with you. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit's like a stylistic choice then. Yeah. And there is a threshold at which that, you know, obviously is not going to be a good option. So what are some of the aspects that we find with Brett then? Yeah. So that's like that old world barnyardy um sweaty saddle (laughs) yeah like dirty leather (laughs) maybe even like that rubbery yucky band-aid smell so i think i've heard most of those except for the sweaty saddle one so that one's a new one you know after a hard day (laughs) out in the fields and I'd like to say I heard that somewhere, but I could have just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> but barnyardy, yeah, that's the one that I, I've heard the most. 
any of those. And again, you know, it's not going to hurt you. And you might be something that the winemaker is going for or embracing. If you want to kill Brett, use sulfur dioxide, which is SO2. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Miss Chemistry. Well, now, SO2, is that also like too much SO2? Is that considered a fault? Yeah, it is. So a very fine balance between barnyard and sulfur. Yeah. And so great diving point, but the there's a fault called mercaptan, mm. and that's kind of a sulfury fault, if you will. But mercaptans are kind of just the compound that's made from sulfur when they chain together. And I think the more they chain together, the worse it gets and the harder it is to break. But you can use copper sometimes to break the chain to where you can get rid of it. But it's tricky. And it has the smells of like cooked vegetables, like cooked cabbage or even garlic, maybe kind of like cooked green vegetables. Hmm. That doesn't sound pleasant. Not something I'd want in my wine. No. And sometimes with the sulfur fault, like if you open it and pour your glass, they may just blow off once they get some oxygen to them. So it is a little bit tricky in the winery to figure out if it's something you're going to treat or if you can just get a little bit of oxygen to get rid of it or if you need to like bring out the big guns and use copper and all the different other techniques. Good to know. So maybe if you open up a bottle and it smells a little eggy, just let it breathe for a little bit and it might go away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of you with the eggy, you know, it can just be a reduction, which reduction just means lack of oxygen. So, you know, with winemaking, you don't want oxygen, but you need just a teeny tiny bit. And if you don't get any, then your wine can be reduced. So opening it up and letting it breathe for a little bit would help that. Then you have the opposite side of that where your wine can be oxidized, which means it had too much oxygen. And that one may be one that's easy for people to spot because the color can help you there. You know, like white wines will get browner. Red wines will even get a little browner. Yeah, like raisiny looking. Yeah. You can, yeah, visually see it. And then your other senses might tell you as well. Yeah, bruised apple is a good one that describes oxidation, so... You know, not the good smelling crisp apple, but like mushy apple. <laughs> mushy apple is not a good thing. <laughs> like they are Instacart delivery driver. <laughs> wow, so that, that's, that's a good number of faults that we've gone through so far. Yeah, and there's one more we wanted to hit because it's kind of like the big one. This one you may actually come across. So our, our final fault is VA, which stands for volatile acidity. And that's just basically when your wine starts to turn to vinegar, which is what it wants to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, it'll smell like vinegar or even nail polish remover if it gets extreme. So anything else to add about wine faults? Um, just that, like, they're not going to more than likely hurt you. So, you know, you don't have to be all up in arms if you get a wine that's a little bit faulted. It may be, it may be okay. Or, yeah. But if you're at a restaurant but who goes to those anymore or, you know, about, and you think something's a little off, don't be afraid to ask and maybe something Right. Because you're paying good money for that. Right. And that's why they pour it and have you sniff and taste and those kinds of things. Have Um, you guys ever experienced any wine faults, like commercially or when you were out? We have, definitely. So um, Brett is one thing that we will occasionally get if we're drinking like an old world wine. Um, we have had our fair share of wines with excess VA and probably oxidation is another one. I think that we've had a little bit. Yeah. And occasionally you'll get, you'll get the sulfur dioxide. Um, 
Where captains I may have experienced once or twice, but it's it's pretty recognizable when you when you encounter that one. So Yeah. Well and are you guys tolerant of a little Brett or is that sure. a big turn? Yeah, a little Brett is okay. It's when it's too much that it's like okay. Yeah. But if you're drinking a sour beer, I guess a, a lot of bread is good, right? So, yeah. What about for yourselves? How, how what what faults do you find often? I have a, um, I guess a high threshold for VA. Like people be like, oh, it's totally there's a VA, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I got that. Um, but then there's some that are so obvious where it's like, this is not what I have in the tasting room. Yeah. Well, and with that, it's very interesting because there are like threshold limits, you know, like if you're in the QAP for North Carolina, there is a threshold like they can test it and tell you exactly what parts per million of VA is in that wine. And I am really bad at picking out the threshold for what the normal person is supposed to be able to pick out. Well, I am glad that you brought up QAP because that is one thing, the Quality Alliance program here in the state that's doing a really good job of identifying faults and trying to boost the quality of wines across the state. So nice plug-in for them. Yeah, yeah look so, for the sticker. Yeah. Well, and I know that some things like that are not just personal and like sensor, your sensory, you can actually measure the yeah. amount of wine. You know, exactly. You can get a value and know for sure if it is or isn't. And catch it earlier in the winemaking process than after bottling and delivery to the consumer. So. All right. Well, Jesse and Jessica, thank you so much for explaining all these wine vaults to us. We hope that you don't find any in your glass. And if you do, you can now identify what they are. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E. M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. Okay, so we're back here with Jeff and Shruti. So let's talk about the wines that uh, you have at Addison Farms. I'm not sure who wants to start. Um, Maybe one of you pick um, reds, one pick whites, and I don't know. You guys decide. But let's go through the lineup and talk about the wines that you have. So I'm going to let Truthy start off with this um, because she had uh, a couple of really outstanding bits from from last year that uh, I'd love for her to talk about. Perfect. So the whites, the whites rosé, um, we have a rosé that is Sangiovese rosé called Crown and Plow. Um, and that one is named after um, Jeff's grandparents' last names is farmer and king and so the crown and the plow um but um that one was with the sangiovese it's um sangiovese really needs to struggle to get that really dark um those tannins and everything that you might have in something like a chianti so um here having a little more rain and fertility in the soil it it um, doesn't want to ripen until it gets to that point. So being able to pick it earlier is always a good thing. So what we've done with that is we picked some uh, a little bit underripe to do a sparkling wine. And um, that one is not released yet, but it is um, uh, about to be disgorged, which is very exciting. And, um, and then the rosé we uh, have done with one 
picking that is um, not totally, you know, just about when they were as ready as they could get, as ripe as they were going to get. Um, so that one, the rosé is uh, done with two different methods. Um, it's the grapes were crushed and pressed, so there was no skin contact. Um, or you could say there was like 30 minutes of skin contact, the time that it took to crush them um, and then put them in the press. Um, and then also a portion of the rosé was signed from our Sangiovese red wine, which comes from a different section, a different vineyard that's also in Leicester. Um, but we did a red wine with that, so that um, a, a portion of that was signed and put into the rosé as well to, to have a, a little more color. Um, so that one's really light, very dry. Um, it almost reminds you more of like a Provence style rosé versus a Bordeaux style rosé. The Sangiovese tends to be a little more um, on the earthier side rather than maybe a Cap Franc rosé that would be a little more um, candy notes. Um, and then we've also made a few different white wines with the Petit Mansang. So the Petit Mansang was when I found out Jeff had Petit Mansang, I was so excited. I was so excited to grow it and um, make wines from it. Um, it's from a region in France called Jurançon, and they have a lot of rain. It's in the Gascony region, and they make dry wines, sweet wines, off-dry wines. Um, and so we separated the vineyard. It's planted in different blocks, so kind of treated the different blocks differently. And uh, one section I pruned um, growing from the top down and it's historically was grown that way um, back in the day where it was called on autan, which means like it's grown like a tree. It's grown um, hmm. up a tree and then the vines hang down. So instead of trying to train the shoots up, we train them down. And uh, so we made a white wine, a dry white wine with that. It actually has a tiny bit of resi residual sugar, but that one is called the Gwyn. Um, and we're hoping to be able to make some more of that this year. And that uh, kind of really expresses the way Petit Mansang, the potential of Petit Mansang, because it has um, a lot of very tropical flavors that become very pronounced when you're making a drier wine. So it's very mango, very tropical, passion fruit, citrus. Um, so a great aperitif just to kind of have by itself. Or, um, and then with a different block, harvested that a little bit later and made um, the wine called Phoenix. Hmm. And uh, that one is off dry. So the, the beauty of Petit Mansang is that it, it, it keeps ripening. And depending on your weather, you can keep ripening it until you make something more late harvest. So that was a little more late harvest. There was a little bit of botrytis on the grapes, not a, not a time, but just a few berries here and there. So nice. when we were picking um, some of the berries, we do a lot of field sorting. So some of the berries that look rotten, you pick them off, but I'll always taste everything. And so some of them as, as tasting and it was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Pick everything. Pick everything. It's so good. <laughs> it's like, do not throw anything away. Um, but it was just so sweet and so rich. Um, but uh, the wine itself that's been made with 
that the Phoenix is um, just a little bit off dry. And those are probably my favorite kind of wines personally, just because they, they're so versatile and they go with so much food. Um, so yeah. And then we picked, um, we separated one section that is in a more South facing uh, part of the vineyard and to do like an even late harvest, even later harvest oh, version wow. of a sweeter wine. Mm -hmm. Really cool. So kind of three different stages of ripening and three different wines from the same grape. Huh. That's fun mm -hmm. to see. Yeah. That's a real, it would be a really cool uh, way to taste the wine yeah. and to, to kind of go from dry to sweet like that, that with mm -hmm. the same grape. Yeah. With the same grape, right. Mm -hmm. And the same winemaker. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so are those all the, the whites and rosés that you have on the there? White and rosé. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, the sparkling, I can, I can, um, so the sparkling is, is all Sangiovese. Um, and that one, um, I pruned uh, a, a few rows of Sangiovese to just be like a little overcropped so that um, um, it actually sort of ends up working out because you get more fruit. And, but that fruit is still worth something because you want the grapes to be a little underripe. Mm -hmm. So in Champagne, when 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 you're looking at the the type of grapes you want for sparkling wine, they're usually a little underripe, and so that ends up working. It could be it could be a really good thing for this area actually, because if we're always having the hurricanes come in the beginning of September, and that's when stuff is just getting soft, and really you'd like to pick it earlier or be able to get it through that rain period. So being able to pick it earlier, it's still healthy, it's still good fruit. Um, so that one we did in the traditional method, which you basically make um, a white wine. We crush, we destem and crush the grapes. Um, we fermented and just trying to make a really neutral, clean wine that is a little bit lower in alcohol because we picked it a little bit early. And then we do a secondary fermentation where we add more sugar, add yeast, um, nutrients, and uh, do a secondary fermentation in the bottle. And then the bubbles come and we um, uh, have aged that. So those are getting ready to get disgorged and we're going to experiment with some different dosage trials. Now, that's going to be super exciting. Uh, as soon as you said that, Joe and I were like, you know, like <laughs> my eyes lit up. I was dancing a little <laughs> in my seat. <laughs> and you bring up a really good point, too, about, you know, seeing more sparkling in the state because we do have a lot of weather issues and sometimes we have to pick early. So I, I think it would be a good thing to see more people doing sparkling. It might not be economical for everyone to do it. Uh, it does take some time. It does take some capital, but uh, and labor intensive to do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think either I think it either needs to be really small or really big. Either you're big enough where right. you have equipment and machines to, and you're producing enough of it to make the, that expensive equipment and machines make sense to do all the extra steps. But if you're also doing just a small amount, and we were doing like 30 cases at a time, so very little, um, and and then you're not really, that cost is defrayed. That makes sense. So then how about for the reds then? Uh, the reds, well, you've already heard that we have a lot of San Giovese. Um, <laughs> uh, Area-wise, it's not much bigger than, than, the, uh, than anything else in the vineyard. 
um, but it's a heavier producer than anything else that we've got. So uh, we do a cup, we do a one we call Vitalita, which is 100% Sangiovese, uh, and our Smokehouse Red, which is a Sangiovese and Chamberson blend. Um, and then uh, depending on on the growing season in the year, we have uh, the Cabernet Franc. We've only got about a half acre of Cab Franc, and so there's enough fruit there to make about um, one or two barrels of Cabernet Franc uh, each year. We call that one structure. The Montepulciano, I really loved it. We That was our red dress, but that those vines took some damage in 2012, and we have babied them and babied them and tried to bring them back and they just they're they're beyond saving so we're going to actually lose that variety out of the vineyard um i should have had it out this spring and i just ran out of time uh Shruthi's still mad at me that they're still in the vineyard um but uh, uh but we're uh, we're working on it we'll get those out sometime uh, but before next spring surely uh they'll be gone um we also use the Chamberson to make a dessert style wine, uh, made in the port style. Um, it's got about uh, 6% residual sugar and somewhere between 18 and 20% alcohol, depending on which version of it we're talking about. Um, I love that one. I, I, I think Chamberson lends itself to becoming that wine. Uh, the first time I ever tasted Chamberson, the, all I could think was this would make a really awesome port. Um, because it's got this nice acidity, uh, really nice color, uh, but the body's a little, it's not big and bold. And so uh, by bulking it up with some uh, 190 proof brandy, uh, we can make a, a, a really nice spirit, or not spirit, but uh, wine out of that. So so Jeff and Sharuthi, let's talk about what, what do, what's the experience like when folks come to visit at Addison Farms? I think we're the wrong ones to ask that question to, but here's what I hope their experience is. Um, that they, um, that folks come in, they feel like uh, they're friends, that they're coming in to see um, friends at the vineyard, that we're giving them not just, uh, they're not just, we're not just pouring wine to taste, that we're giving them some sort of connection to this place, that we're uh, imparting some sort of uh, viticulture or enological knowledge uh, that we're giving them the story behind the wines. We're talking about the growing season and we're talking about the variety and we're talking about uh, what we're doing here to try to preserve the family farm. Our goal there is to make this um, not just a commercial transaction, but uh, a personal experience. Um, to maybe maybe share why we do what we do and and that's that's our goal is uh, i want everybody that leaves here um to leave here happy having been here uh, that and that's the the effort we put out in the tasting room um all of our uh, hosts are uh, first in what we're doing here they're engaging um and uh, able to share our story um with everybody that walks through the door We've always enjoyed all of our visits and the, the, from the wines to the hospitality to the views. It's a, it's a great place to, to visit and relax and kind of get away because I don't think I have cell phone service there. So it's kind of nice. Well, I, I, <laughs> you definitely don't. Yeah, that's what I have. You know, everything here, um, what makes us unique 
is us. Uh, I mean, and I, I don't mean that in a uh, malignant, narcissistic way. <laughs> Just, but um, this place means something to us. And I want the folks that come here to visit with us to want it to mean something to them as well. Well, I think that definitely comes through um, the passion and, and, you know, the dedication that you've had for, for, for all these years and trying to, to do the, you know, do something with the farm and share it with others is, is a really cool experience. So let's, it's 2020. So let's talk about COVID. Um, what, let's talk about the impact uh, that COVID has had on the business. We've talked about the, the weather and how that's impacted the vineyard, but um, I know you guys, because of uh, stay at home orders and that sort of thing, were kind of shut down for a little while. And so I'm sure that's affected business uh, throughout the year. But let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now and what, what folks would expect when they come to visit. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we're not unique in what I'm getting ready to say, but we were shut down for 90 days and we this industry were uh not unlike our restaurant brethren, we're, we're cash flow business. It, the, the sales we make today, uh, pay salaries tomorrow or the electric bill or, uh, debt service or whatever it is. But when, when that cash flow goes to all but zero, um, that's, that's a terrifying moment. Um, what are, you know, how are we going to weather this? And then, um, as we have emerged as phase two, uh, restrictions allowed us to open. Um, we made the choice that we were going to go to a reservations model. Now we're not turning folks away that are walk-ins, but our reservations certainly take priority. And, uh, if we've got a full slate of reservations, we'll only offer bottle service, uh, outside to, uh, to other guests. Um, and that's to, to make sure that we're taking care of the folks that went through the process that we've tried to set up to make this sure, as safe as sure. we can be, um, uh, for the folks that are coming out here. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised. I, I had told my crew, um, that if we saw January levels of traffic for the rest of the year, I would expect that to be less of a loss than what I had expected. And, uh, and to put that, to make sure everybody knows what January levels of traffic mean, January stinks. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the January and February time period is just really slow, uh, for travel, for tourists, for, uh, folks visiting. And so those are our worst months typically, <laughs> uh, this year being a pretty big exception to that. But, um, we've seen folks embrace the, the reservations model. Um, I like it. Uh, frankly, it's here to stay. We're not going to, we aren't going back to the old way, even when things go back to the old ways. Um, and uh, we see that as uh, a way to make sure that it helps us plan the day, sure. plan staffing, and make sure that we're giving our guests the experience we want them to have. And so uh, it's been it's been impactful, uh, mostly in a negative way. COVID, I'm talking about, but we've seen some positives come out of uh, just our operations. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking exclusively right now about the tasting room. Um, the vineyard, the vineyard didn't care that there was a pandemic <laughs> right, exactly. going on it, yeah. uh, it. It's still doing what it does. And so, um, that work doesn't, we don't get to postpone that just because, um, uh, there's a, a craziness about in the world. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, just touching really quick on the reservation piece of it. Personally, I think that um, it, it's a little reassuring from a consumer perspective because right. you know, like if you're if the business you're going to is taking reservations or kind of putting the emphasis on the reservations, you know that they're going to have a somewhat throttled or you know restrained number of people there. So you're not going to be walking in to a major block party uh, as, as good as that would be for you guys <laughs> having a, a lot of people there would be awesome but i think from a, a consumer perspective it's just kind of reassuring to know that there aren't going to be 50 million other strangers there with you so so don't get me wrong we would love to have that volume but we don't want it either i mean the the reality is that um i don't want i don't want to be sick i don't want my crew to be sick i don't want my folks to be sick um and so by limiting that by uh, our policy is if you're in our space and you're not actively engaged in a tasting, you need to be wearing your mask. And if that's too much of an ask, um, we appreciate your interest, but uh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, because right. it, wearing the mask isn't about protecting you. It's about protecting everybody else. Um, and so uh, if we're all doing our part there, then we're mitigating the, the, the risk. We're not eliminating it. No. But we're certainly uh, not opening ourselves up willingly <laughs> to to uh, to either getting sick or making somebody else sick. Yeah, and that's that's the right thing to do for yeah, sure. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about a, a little lighter note. So you're you're really close to Asheville. Um, what kind of impact do you see that has on your business uh, in a normal year? <laughs> uh, do you get a lot of people from the Asheville region, or do you still get a lot of people from other parts of the state? Our traffic, um, Atlanta is our number one source of traffic. Um, Atlanta, Charlotte, Greenville, uh, East Tennessee, Central Florida, um, Southern Florida, and New England are the top sources of traffic. Local traffic is eighth or ninth uh, as far as the volume of folks that we see. Um, but our business is, is tourism dependent. Now, I will say that coming from Atlanta, um, um, it, I mean, I grew up here, but I spent 17 years in Metro Atlanta, stuck in traffic. And, and for us, um, 30 miles was, you know, basically across the street if we were going somewhere. Um, and so we are 17 miles from downtown, uh, downtown Asheville. Um, and that distance has been a bigger hurdle to overcome for the tourists than I had expected. Hmm. Um, now that it's not impossible, but Asheville gets about 10 million visitors annually. Uh, Biltmore sees about a million and a half of those folks. Biltmore is the most visited winery in the U.S. Um, and so for us, it, even just the traffic that, that visits Biltmore, we got half a percent, three quarters of a percent of those folks to make that 17-mile drive on out to visit with us. We're busier than I know how to manage right now. And I'm okay with that. We'll figure it out Yeah. Um, post-COVID, um, <laughs> being clear here. Uh, you know, under normal circumstances. And so um, we can we can figure that out. But uh, tapping into that tourist market has been a little more difficult than my business model would have uh, forecast. I can, I can see that making sense, especially, I mean, it, it does seem like it can be like, oh, I'm, I'm here in Nashville. I don't want to go anywhere else. But it really isn't that far. It's a gorgeous drive when you get it up there. Is, yeah. When you're done with it, you can head over, you know, keep going. And the mountains up that way are just really really scenic when you're in Asheville it's almost like like it's, it feels like a little bit of a valley because you 
you have to drive out of Asheville to really see the mountains. You have to get to Madison County, get out to Leicester, and that's when you really see the beauty. But Asheville itself is, you know, you're there for for the scene, for all the things that there are to do. Yeah. But, yeah. It's a great point. It is kind of, Asheville is kind of in its own little, like, metropolitan isolation, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's not until you get out of it that you see the beauty. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've learned about uh, over the years of doing business, whether it's growing grapes, serving wine, making wine. Uh, what have you learned over those years? It takes money to drink liquor and ride the train. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, my mom was a guy who said that a lot. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the impact is more... Um, there's a bigger impact now that I've uh, started doing this. Um, one of the things that Shruti and I talk about frequently is that this is a capital intensive business. So when you're regular folks like us and doing this on a shoestring budget, you, you make the compromises. There are things that you can and can't do just strictly from a budget standpoint. But um, the, the biggest lesson I've learned in doing this is that um, no matter how much how much you're forecasting it's going to take to, to do whatever it is you're planning to do, triple it. <laughs> Shruti, how about for yourself? Yeah, as far as, um, like, with with growing, seeing how, um, seeing how difficult it is to grow grapes in this area, um, it definitely pushes me towards, you know, the, towards more education and, and the hybrid varieties and like learning how to make wine with hybrid varieties and just all these things that we, we, we don't know. And then all the things that we don't know, we don't know. Um, so that has, has made me think a lot about like back in the day, farmers had native grapes and then they were planting those grapes in the places where they couldn't grow anything else. The grape was the hardier crop. It was the more enduring crop. And then for us, it can turn into the one that's like the the most difficult. <laughs> and so I think finding, you know, finding that middle ground, we need to be moving towards um, what's more native, what does better, um, what do we, uh, what can we grow sustainably um, and what's more consistent too, because seeing farmers struggle, or there's people that have, you know, the people that are just growing the grapes and not making the wine necessarily. And one year you have, you have, you know, tons of this fruit and then the next year you have nothing like that's just not a sustainable way to, to, to live. But then you have this one variety that consistently every year it's producing so much fruit so there has to be some practicality towards it as well yes it's very romantic when you get to um the end of the day and you're sitting with a beautiful beautiful meal and a glass of wine and there's there's all the kind of effort and romance in that moment but you have to it's a business as well and it has to be practical too you can't just grow stuff that everything just dies <laughs> that's very true that's, yeah. that's that's a great observation so we are kind of winding down here on some of the questions. Um, what's left the biggest impact on you? For me, um, this really is all about preserving the family farm. Um, 
that's my goal. That's what we're trying to do here. Um, and I'm really proud of where we are at this point. Uh, it's not perfect. Um, we're not perfect. Um, but we're seeing, we're seeing this piece of property still productive. It's still producing an agricultural product. Um, my grandparents were teetotalers, but, uh, I am reasonably confident that both of them would be really excited to see, um, see what we're doing here. That's awesome. I, and I would agree. I think so. And Shruti, how about you? Um, being able to make wines here that are genuinely delicious and growing something and, and making a product that, you know, I choose to drink that. I want that. I want some more of it too. <laughs> and that's just, that's just so exciting. And that every time, um, since I've started tasting North Carolina wines, I just, they just keep getting better and better and better. Um, so from the first, from the, like, you know, less than five years ago that I first was tasting North Carolina wines to the last wine growers conference and, um, just everything's delicious. And so it just seems like the rate at which people are getting more educated and getting more into it and the more wine being made and more care being taken in the vineyard and in the winery, um, that that's all it took really was just a little more effort and a little more passion to, to really make wines that are beautiful and delicious and, you know, everyone else can, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> There's been so much stigma against North Carolina, especially like working in the restaurant industry for so long and just constantly hearing this North Carolina wines are bad. Um, but they haven't tasted what we've tasted. So it's, it's getting better all the time and it's getting better very quickly, which is exciting. Completely agree on that part. So Jeff, can you tell our listeners how to find you on the internet maybe and social media as well Absolutely. as physically? Yeah. Um, you can find us on Instagram uh, at Addison Farms, uh, on Facebook, Addison Farms Vineyard. Um, we have a Twitter account, but I'm not active on it, so don't use that one. Um, our web address is addisonfarms.net, uh, and you can find links to make reservations and shop online and um, support your local family-owned and operated vineyard. Excellent. And anything else you would like folks to know about Addison Farms before we wrap up? Wine is one of the few things where um, – Addison, it's an estate vineyard, so we're doing everything from the ground up. We're growing the grapes, um, seeing them from from being one year old until they're producing, and and then we're making the wine as well, and then we're selling it. So there's very few products that have that full complete circle all in one place. Um, so it's really amazing to see that. I think the start to finish. Excellent. Completely agree. So Jeff, Saruthi, thank you for taking some time to talk with us today. Uh, we do hope to be able to come and visit again real soon. Uh, so again, thanks for being on Court Talk. Thank you all for having us.
That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Saruthi and Jeff. If you haven't been to Addison Farms, you should plan a visit and make a reservation. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NCWineGuys. Until next time, and remember, the cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.